Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Historical Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with David Potter about his new book, Theodora, Actress, Empress, Saint. David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a delight to be here. Delight to have you here. David, I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I'm a professor of classics and ancient history at the University of Michigan, where I've been for the last 30 years. I have taught quite extensively across the range of Roman history, and a number of years ago began teaching courses on ancient public entertainment and ancient spectacle, uh, which is actually how I got into the career of uh, Theodora. So as a wonderful case where teaching has uh, really helped me develop a research project here. I think that... uh focus, you know, comes across in this book, and as I, our listeners are going to discover in a little bit, was this a, uh, were you drawn to writing a biography, or were you approached about writing this book? Well, I was asked uh, by Oxford to write this book. Um, I'd written a number of other books of uh, more general sort on the history of the late Roman Empire, um, a biography of the Emperor Constantine. And it seemed a very interesting possibility to move later into the time of Theodora to look at the empire as it had developed over time, and also to look at a really very different kind of historical problem. And that's what I think drew me to the project most of all. With Constantine, we have somebody who frankly never shuts up. We have thousands (laughs) of lines of Latin that Constantine must have approved because their communications with his own senior officials. And we can sort of write about Constantine uh, on the basis of Constantine. Uh, Whereas with Theodora, we have a very different sort of uh, issue. We have Theodora as seen by others and trying to sort of recover a personality, human being behind this uh, was just to me an intriguing problem uh, issue. I also love reading detective stories and uh, there is a certain sort of aspect of detection that goes into trying to find uh, Theodora between the rabid hostility of one of our main sources, Procopius, and the incredibly uh, pious celebration of her by John of Ephesus. And so how do we how do we find this world and this society and fit her into it? That is one of the things that uh, stood out for me when when I read your book, which was the amount of deductive reasoning that you put into these assessments of what do we take for granted, how do we use the source, what can we take from the source, which, while flawed, nonetheless can offer insights if used correctly. That's exactly right. I mean, very often uh, with somebody like Procopius, um, where there's smoke, there is fire. It may not be the same fire that he wants you to believe in, but there, but there is usually something there. Uh, we can often get multiple versions of the same story from our different accounts. Um, but also, an important thing is sort of 
getting an idea of what the possible is in this society. Uh, how could you accomplish something? How could you do something? And so if we get a story that seems frankly impossible, um, we need to sort of sit back and think about what, what it could really mean. And, you know, frankly, the most astonishing aspect of this story is how a woman who had been the concubine of a, an imperial officer who had thrown her out of the house, moved off to Antioch and somehow met the heir to the throne and became his wife. Um, it's just, you know, what context do we have for this? It's a story like none other in the ancient world. And that's one of the things that you do in this book is you provide uh, that context to help fill in a lot of the uh, a lot of the missing information about Theodore's life. And I was wondering if you could uh, provide some of that context for us, uh, particularly you start off by talking about Constantinople. And I was wondering if you could tell us what Constantinople was like uh, at, you know, in, in the late fifth, early sixth century. Well, Constantinople was one of the really sort of vibrant centers of culture. It's a world where the Roman Empire, the traditions of the Roman Empire, were kept alive by the imperial government. It was, of course, a very heavily Christianized version of it. So we have uh, intense dispute about the appropriate way to worship God. Uh, we have people coming together from all over the Mediterranean world. You sort of sense it in the food. Um, and it was you could do now if you go to Istanbul. I mean, you have influence coming in from the Balkans. Justinian was a peasant from the Balkans. Uh, we know that his, his uncle and adoptive father, Justin, you know, is said to have packed up some local sausage uh, and walked all the way to Istanbul to join the army. Uh, Theodora, interestingly, probably uh, has a Balkan uh, background. She's said to be a blonde. Um, she is the daughter of a bear keeper. Uh, which, as we look at the jobs that people have in the imperial circuit, is a pretty respectable job. It's certainly worth bribing somebody to get, uh, as as happens with her when her biological father dies and her stepfather uh, comes uh, comes forward looking for the job. Um, it's also a city that is a bit on edge. People are aware that they're not as powerful as they used to be. They could wander around the city and see the monuments of past emperors. But these aren't always bringing up really great memories. You can uh, see the house of Basiliscus, but you can remember that this guy botched the invasion of North Africa uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Um, you can go to the you know, monuments of various other emperors. You remember there's something a bit ambivalent about a bit of it. Uh, this is a city that needs its walls. Um, it survived the world of Attila the Hun, uh, but it isn't the sort of all-powerful Roman Empire of the distant past, and people people know that. Um, and then, of course, if you go down to the harbor, it still uh, may not be all-powerful, but it's still rich. Um, it's where you'll meet people coming from Egypt or Africa or Spain uh, or coming from the Persian Empire or coming out of central Syria an extraordinary cosmopolitan society. And it's also a community that is riven with political factionalism. And it's, it's a politics that in, in, in some ways is very alien to us. And yet in some ways there's some, you know, curious similarities. And I was wondering if you could speak to a bit about the, uh, the factions and, and how that played into uh, Theodora's family. 
Yes. The crucial sort of organization of the common people in Constantinople uh, is in terms of the circus factions. Uh, there are two primary ones, the Blues and the Greens, and uh, they organize districts of the city. Uh, they bring people together. They sit them quite literally down in their tens of thousands in the Hippodrome for the chariot races. Um, when the emperors need to address the people as a whole, they tend to do so in the Hippodrome uh, at the chariot races to the people organized by their factions. Now, um, the factions include not only the you know, physical organization of the chariot teams, uh, where you have some quite powerful people uh, who run them, um, are very highly compensated. The charioteers, some of these charioteers, again, extremely powerful and influential people. Just before Theodora's um, life, well, actually, in her childhood, there was a man by the name of Porphyrius, uh, a great charioteer, but also very powerful politically, uh, a person who has organized uh, the people in one case to defend the city of Constantinople against attacks by a usurper, uh, in another case, uh, organized an appalling attack on the Jewish community in the city of Antioch, uh, very much of a sort of independent agent. Um, and we have these, these people uh, like Porphyrius and others who have a great deal of power uh, the government really has to negotiate with uh, all the time. Uh, so the, the, the power is not in, in terms of high politics. It's more in terms of, and I, I you know, I, I hesitate to use the word mob rule, but, but sort of the, the popular politics of the street. Yeah, it is very much the, the politics of the street. And the imperial government's got to be really careful because it can't control these politics all the time. It, it, its authority is constantly negotiated with people. Uh, it can't think of doing something like shutting down the chariot races. Um, in There are occasions you know, where the emperor is going to be at physical risk at the games. I mean, we have the uh, great Nika revolt of 532 that Theodora and Justinian had to face, but it's just one in a series of uh, popular uprisings in the circus. So Theodora is exposed to politics at a very early age by virtue of her family's uh, involvement with this. She w uh, which uh, group was she aligned with? Well, um, her first faction were the Greens. Um, her father was the barkeeper uh, for the Greens. Well, but then when he died, um, her mother tried to remarry and get the position for her new husband, uh, but this was given to somebody else. Uh, and her mother brought Theodora and her two sisters into the floor of the circus um, and asked for support. It was an extraordinary, dramatic moment. And the blues take them in to show them that everybody that they're the truly generous people uh, and that the greens are cruel and corrupt and what have you. <laughs> so it's not it's not in the way we might think of a, of a gang today where, you know, if you're a blue, you're a blue for life, that there was oftentimes uh you know, people could cross from one uh, group to another? Um, you could, but I think that the story of Theodora uh, is a bit unusual. I mean, ordinarily, people stayed uh, pretty loyal to their faction. Uh, but, yeah, you could move a bit. Uh, charioteers, the major sort of entertainers, there's a certain sort of free agency that's that, that's available out there. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so, her 
you speak a bit about uh, entertainment in, in, in Constantinople. Was it uh, purely a matter of, of keeping the people uh, happy, or was there was it more complicated than that? Well, it was initially just a, as a feature of government. I mean, centuries earlier, famously, uh, the satirist Juvenal uh, had said that you know, the Roman people are controlled by bread and circuses. Um, and then another observer said, yes, a good emperor is always aware of the need for entertainment and food to keep the people happy. Um, and that was a major business of government. Um, part of the sort of ideology of government, of course, is its benefactions, that it reaches out and provides good things and secures good things for its people. Uh, and the good entertainment is certainly one way of doing it. Uh, it's also the mark of a sophisticated city. Not everybody can have a circus. Um, it's a way of sort of showing the city off that it can it can manage these things. Um, uh, just as also um, the government's responsible for making sure there's supply of uh, of affordable grain for people. What mm-hmm. one of the things that I, I was not aware of before I read the book, but I was fascinated by it was how you talked about how. Or, and you show, and you have the map in there that shows that the Hippodrome was actually attached to the palace. Exactly. And if you uh, go to Constant- Istanbul today, uh, you can still see some remains of the walls of the, uh, of the Hippodrome, um, the massive things. But right now, you, uh, the central sort of area of the, what would have been the center of the, of the Hippodrome runs right in front of the Blue Mosque, which is built over the Imperial Palace. So you can still get an idea of the relationship between these central um, buildings of power in downtown um, Constantinople, Istanbul. Uh, but of course, what was going on in Constantinople wasn't you know entirely about entertainment. There was also religion, and I was wondering if you could speak a bit to the religious uh, environment in which uh, Theodora uh, lived. Yes, well, the environment in which she lived was very much uh, conditioned by the Council of Chalcedon in 451, um, which had established a particular doctrine uh, about the nature of Christ, um, which asserted, again, uh, his human divine nature. Uh, And very interestingly, a couple of years later, the sort of boogeyman of the mid-5th century Attila the Hun suddenly died. Uh, and I think that for some people, especially in the Balkans and around Constantinople, there's a connection. We finally got it right. We're worshiping God correctly. Uh, and he did in uh, Attila, and we're safe now. Um, but in other parts of the empire, uh, there was a slightly different take on the relationship between the father and the son. Um, and they didn't were unwilling to see um, that there could be a separate human nature of Christ. Um, and over time, these debates about Christ and the nature of Christ uh, become incredibly intense. Uh, you know, as, as an outsider, sometimes it's very difficult to sort of understand how deeply felt these issues uh, can actually be. Uh, but it's like any kind of sort of community building or community activity uh, where sort of very small differences start defining who you are or different groups. Um, and that's what's, that's what's happened with Christianity. Um, it's more than simply a question of doctrine. 
uh, it becomes a question of uh, who we are and what's our place in this world. And it's also becomes a question of politics as well. And ha- and the two are so intertwined that you, you know, all these, you know, seemingly abstract uh, theological disputes have this very critical political dimension. That's exactly right. Um, it's hard for us, I think, to sort of have a, you know, an immediate parallel to mind. Uh, but I think if you were to stand back a uh, hundred years from now and look at some of the debates uh, that are going on in society now, I mean, for instance, uh, the gun control debate, um, looking back on it, would you really say that people who are on a terrorist watch list should be allowed to, you know, uh, buy automatic uh, automatic weapons? Um, but this has become a, a an, an area of dogma uh, and identity um, nowadays, and I think we have similar issues uh, that you can see in Constantinople, where um, how could you possibly say that God was God died, which is what uh, what one position would be, you know, that the human nature of God has to be separate, um, but how can you say that? How can you say that there might be a difference between one God and the other? Um, and again, uh, trying to sort of see uh, how things which might seem on the outside um, difficult um, can become emotionally incredibly important is, a, is, a, is something I've been trying to do with this book is to try to help people um, understand uh, that the religious disputes of this period are really deeply emotional. Uh, community um, issues. And they were ones that, that leaders had to walk a very fine line on in many ways. Where did Theodora uh, uh, reside in this divide? Well, Theodora had a very interesting religious career. Uh, she was very much a supporter of the anti-Chalcedonian faction, uh, which was extremely powerful in Egypt, uh, where, again, the modern Coptic church is descendant of an anti-Chalcedonian uh, movement. Uh, also in Syria, in the area, of course, around Antioch and east of that, um, she had a very close personal connection with a very powerful bishop by the name of Severus, uh, Severus of Antioch. Uh, and my suspicion uh, is that when she was really at her most sort of desperate, um, she found in the church in Antioch uh, a community that would take her in after she'd been thrown out by the for her former lover uh, and the father of her child. Uh, one of the key messages of uh, Severus, of course, was redemption was possible for everyone and for anyone. Um, I doubt that she and Severus had much in common. She'd been a mime actress. She'd been a very successful mime actress. I uh, sort of think that the Severus disapproved of very strongly. Um, but there's a sort of tie-in between the church and the stage. And, you know, the church, sees, you know, if they can get an actress to stop being an actress, this is a, this is a big deal. It's a sign you know, of moral uh, change in a good way. Uh, so I think that the, uh, the anti-Chalcedonian movement uh, and its message of redemption was something that Theodora made very much her own as she's trying to put her life back together. We've been talking a lot about the context. Let's talk a bit about Theodore herself, uh, although it will be drawing upon that context a bit more. Uh, her life as an 
actress. It, it, it seems that she had this, on the one hand, she's in an occupation that was not necessarily highly regarded morally. And yet at the same time, it was a, a position that had a certain amount of stature and, and opened up enormous opportunities, as it obviously did for Theodora. Right. Well, one of the curiosities throughout Roman history is that the official line on public entertainers is that these are people who are amoral, they are people who are eliminated from polite society, should not be allowed to participate in polite society, etc. Whereas at the same time, these are people who could make a great deal of money. One of the richest people we hear of any point in antiquity is a charioteer in the second century by the name of Diocles, who made uh, over 20 million uh, sesterces in the course of his career, much wealthier than members of the Senate. Uh, we have law codes uh, you know, or issues uh, in the law codes about actresses, for instance, that they're dressing like the empress and the empress saying, stop doing that, please, because they're so very wealthy. Um, we can trace the careers of uh, actors um, in papyri and in documents to see how much money they made. There's a really important work uh, by a Finnish scholar named Manavestrinen. Uh, who traced the direct evidence for um, the money made by actors and actresses and, and looked at their, uh, their sort of career formation through the documentary record, uh, directly relevant really to, to Theodora. So we can see that this is really a good middle class, upper middle class sort of um, occupation. Uh, and of course, if you make it to the top, if you're a star, uh, you're a public figure just as you are uh, as you are nowadays, and everybody's wanting to see, you know, how do you dress, where you're going? Uh, these are people also who are very famous for the openness, freedom of their lifestyle. Um, the official line, of course, is that women should marry and have children, and that's that. But the independent women of the stage are very much the opposite. Uh, they take uh, the lovers they, cho- they, they choose, they live independently, Theodora, now, in her late teens, seems to have had her own place to live, uh, had a wide range of admirers. Um, that would be typical of an, of an actress uh, in her uh, in her generation. Uh, and there was, though, sometimes a transition between being an actress and being a, a prostitute or a mistress. And, and what exactly... You know, how did that relationship work out? Well, um, very often you, what we can see, of course, is that the careers of successful actresses uh, are limited. Uh, most people's careers sort of run from their late teens into their early 20s, as Theodora's did. Um, it seems that what Theodora was really looking for you know, when she got into her early 20s, was a good deal more stability in her life. Um, and she met a man by the name of Hecabolus, who's a well-placed imperial official, going to go off and be an imperial governor. She's probably a great catch for him. She's a, you know, famous actress. Um, everybody who writes about her says she was absolutely gorgeous. And uh, so he uh, has his new uh, girlfriend, his beautiful, bright, charming Theodora, um, and uh, the understanding will be that he won't have other mistresses, uh, other sexual relations, uh, while she's living with him. 
uh, and that she's supposed to su- he's supposed to support her. Uh, but and that was it's still a very tenuous lifestyle. Uh, but it's the best that a former actress could hope for, um, at least until she met Justinian. Well, what would she be trying to avoid? I mean, what's sort of the, the what's the worst case scenario that she never fell into? Uh, what the worst case scenario that she would fall into, I think, would be uh, prostitution. Um, that she would really lose control uh, over her own choice uh, of uh, partners and would be um, having uh, to have sex for money to stay alive. Um, she seems to be very conscious of that being a possible avenue. She is extremely supportive of programs when she's empress to try to protect prostitutes from the worst aspects of their lives. She tries to get them out of prostitution, to give them new occupations, to give them the money that they need. Um, they're, you know, to try to prevent uh, people entering prostitution. Um, her her later policy suggests that she saw that as a possible end for herself, as a way of making a living for herself uh, and supporting her child, and she was desperately keen to avoid it. There, there did seem to be sort of a there but for the grace of God go I, you know. I think there was very much that in Theodora. When she, when Hecabolus um, threw her out, as you know, we're told that he did. Um, she had to really find a way to make it on her own. I think she still had some money. She'd been a successful actress. Um, she had a lot of ability, a lot of talent, so she was able to get herself a job working for the Imperial Intelligence Service, spying in Antioch uh, on people in, connected with the circus factions. Um, but she was really faced with making a major, major career change and finding a way uh, that she wouldn't uh, fall into into prostitution. So how does she uh, avoid going down that route? Well, she must have had connections still within the faction of the Blue. And when she got to Constantinople, oh, sorry, to Antioch, um, it looks like she used those connections to get a job. And the people who ran the factions were connected with the imperial government, especially the Blues, uh, who were favored by Justinian, who was sort of emerging at this point as a significant figure as the uh, adoptive son of the Emperor Justin. Uh, we get an idea of the kinds of issues that would come up that the government is very worried about. We actually have the report of another spy in Antioch uh, who was sent out to a town in Syria to see whether or not uh, they weren't actually worshipping a heretic. And he writes back and sort of points out the lies the local authorities are telling you. I mean, the imperial government knows that its officials lie to it all, all the time. Um, and so they need people sort of outside of the official reporting lines uh, to tell them what's really going on. And Theodora became one of these people. Uh, how does she meet Justinian? Do we have any details about that? We don't know how she meets him. Uh, it seems to be that uh, there's one story that uh, comes down through Procopius, which he mangles um, as he does everything in her life. But it some, seems to be sort of part of her official biography that she went off to Constantinople and that she met Justinian there. I would think you know, in a way that since he was very keen on the blue faction, 
Um, something may have come in where he looked at something and said, boy, this one's good. Or who is the person who wrote this? Uh, I'd like to meet her. And Justinian was a, a man of extraordinary, esteemous lifestyle. I mean, um, he sort of lived like a monk when he wasn't living with Theodora. Uh, and so I think that the, he wouldn't have known really, perhaps, he may have known who she was from Antioch uh, or from her background in Istanbul before then. Uh, but I think it was really something that happened, something she did in Antioch that attracted her, uh, his attention to her. Uh, and then he just fell head over heels in love with her. Uh, within about a year of the first time they met, uh, can't be more than that, he has gone to his uh, father, the emperor, and said, I want a law that enables me to marry an actress. And he obtains the status of patrician for her. And this is not a political move on his point. So the worst thing he could possibly do if he wants to be the next emperor, uh, he's taken up with a woman who really is openly anti-Chalcedonian. She's a former actress. She has a trial by a former partner. And Justinian takes all of it in. It really does uh, come across as a real statement of love for her that, that he does all these things. It really is. I think it's an extraordinary. I mean, this is one of the great love stories. Uh, I was wondering. If you, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about Justinian himself. I mean, who was he, and 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 how uh, you know, how does he become uh, emperor? Well, Justinian uh, started life uh, living in the Balkans. Uh, his uncle uh, Justin uh, joined the army uh, and was extremely successful. He really rose in the ranks from private to uh, head of the imperial guard. Uh, and uh, when the Emperor Anastasius died, uh, Justin was in a position to have himself made emperor. And so when he's made emperor, he has brought his nephew along, and Justinian played some role in helping stage manage uh, Justin's accession, uh, getting people in the right place so things would work out uh, correctly. And so he becomes an important aid to Justin, uh, from the very beginning of his reign. Uh, but, you know, he's not clearly in the line of succession, even though Justin has adopted him. Uh, no son has succeeded his father on the throne um, in a century uh, before the um, accession of uh, Justinian in 527. Uh, so it's a very careful political process that that he has to steer um, here between um, uh, 518 and 527 uh, in that in that decade to get himself into a position to be the heir. And, and roughly when does he uh, meet Theodora? He meets Theodora, I think, probably in 520 to 521. The law that is past allowing them to be married and it's incredibly person specific it's clear it can be only about Theodora because you envisage former actress who wants to marry a member of the upper class who has her own daughter and what have you <laughs> um, the latest that that law could have been issued is in the summer of 522 uh, because we know the career of the official who actually wrote it a man by the name of Demosthenes um, so they must have met sometime in the previous year, previous 18 months, so 520, 521, uh, they would have met. And how old was Theodora around this point? At that point, she is probably uh, born. Again, we don't really know the 
the year of her birth, but all of the evidence about her uh, career would suggest she was born in uh, 497, and so she'll be in her mid-20s at that point. Um, this is a point if she'd been a woman of upper-class status, she might have been married for nearly a decade, uh, but as a woman of her time, um, uh, it's a relatively it's a relatively late marriage for her, and Justinian's a decade older than she is. Uh, and one of the things that's strange or interesting about him is there are no illegitimate children, there are no other mistresses, there's no other significant connection. Um, part of this may have been that members of the aristocracy were unwilling to make a political alliance with Justin or to have their daughters marry um, his adoptive son. Uh, but part of it may also have been a uh, personal choice on Justinian's part. We know that he was very keen on theology. He lived a very ascetic lifestyle, um, you know, sort of a monk in the palace, as it were, until him Theodora. And also the fact that uh, Justinian was not guaranteed to succeed uh, Justin as emperor. Exactly. And uh, that, as I was saying, is part of this risk uh, factor here. Um, I'm going to move this young woman into the palace, and she isn't going to be approved of, certainly by the patriarch, because we all seem to know that she's got connections with Severus of Antioch and uh, all these other anti-Chalcedonians. In fact, one of her values to Justinian is that she can actually be a bridge to the anti-Chalcedonian community, because uh, Justin, a very strong uh, Chalcedonian emperor, uh, is clearly loathed by the uh, anti-Chalcedonian group who he'd, he'd persecuted early in his reign. Um, but as problems develop in the 520s, uh, especially down in uh, in southern Arabia, as there's a sudden uh, upsurge of violence in the area um, in an effort to build an Arabian coalition against the Roman Empire, uh, is partially diffused through the um, non-Chalcedonian connections of, of Justinian and Theodora. So how does Justinian become emperor? How does he basically uh, ensure the succession of his father when his father dies? Uh, I think it really has to begin with the successful negotiation uh, of the crisis in Arabia, uh, where a leader had emerged as a very staunchly uh, Jewish leader named Dun Navas in southern Arabia, went and massacred the Christian population at a place called Najran, um, a complex situation where a Christian um, administration had been brought into the area uh, from uh, Ethiopia, actually. Uh, but in the winter months, Dunavas had taken advantage of the inability uh, of the Ethiopian army to uh, recross the sea, uh, massacred the Christian community, and then gone up to the sort of Arab confederations on the border of the Roman Empire uh, and tried to urge them to join him in a war against all Christians. Uh, and it was at a complicated uh, meeting uh, that was organized by people that we know to be connected with Theodora um, that uh, this situation was diffused. And after that, we can see that Justinian seems to be on the fast track to becoming emperor. So Justinian becomes emperor in uh, five 27, yeah. and Theodore then becomes the empress. What, what did being 
uh, Empress entail? And what were her responsibilities? What was her life like as Empress? Well, officially, the Empress sort of models ideal feminine behavior. Uh, she is supposed to engage in sort of polite charities, charity work. Um, she will play a role in uh, negotiating marriages amongst members of the upper class. Uh, she is not supposed to be engaged in the sort of big business of government, but you know that is something that has been uh, sort of brought into question already by Ariadne, uh, who was the wife of two previous emperors, Zeno and Anastasius, and said that she thought Zeno was so repulsive that she had him buried alive. She was a daughter of the <laughs> emperor Leo, um, a very, very powerful figure. Um, and so this notion that the empress could be more than somebody who did polite good works was certainly uh, established very firmly by uh, by Ariadne. And uh, under Theodora, again, she's a, a powerful figure. She meets with the imperial council. Not even Ariadne had done that. Um, she seems to get on extremely well with a number of Justinian's most important officials, including Trebonian, who's the great lawyer of the reign, uh, who uh, produced the uh, corpus of civil law, one of the great contributions uh, of the era of Justinian to European history generally. Um, she got on with a number of other, we can see, senior officials uh, and members of the imperial uh, of the army. Uh, one of her important connections, at least in a positive way early on, uh, is with the general Belsarius. Um, they're later going to have a terrible falling out, but at this stage, uh, she's very close to him and to his wife, who's also um, a former actress. Um, Belsarius is another person uh, who's a uh, uh, peasant background from the Balkans. Uh, this is a point where Justinian is really pulling together people with a lot of non-traditional backgrounds to be at the center of government, and Theodora is at the center of that group. Um, there are going to be a few people she can't stand as well. I mean, um, the chief financial official, John of Cappadocia, and she have a very rocky relationship um, throughout uh, the reign until she finally gets him exiled to Egypt. Um, uh, but she'll also play a role with the church. Again, the traditional role of the empress is, again, to be sort of modeling the Virgin Mary <laughs> on earth. Um, and you can imagine that some sort of conservative people, what is this with an illegitimate child <laughs> modeling the Virgin Mary? Uh, it, it, that was one of the things that, that uh, it really struck me it was, was how she did seem to have a much larger religious role. I, I can't remember exactly how you put it in the book, but how she, in a sense, had certain responsibilities you know, within, you know, in, in the context of the imperial couple that were predominantly or almost exclusively hers that's, when it came to religion. That's exactly right. Well, um, she has churches that she is the patron of. Um, there are various... Uh, orders and groups that come to her uh, first and foremost. She has enormous wealth of her own, and she's able to distribute money uh, on her own. She doesn't have to sort of ask Justinian what to do with it. Um, and so she you know, plays a role um, giving great gifts to churches. When Antioch is hit by an earthquake, she and Justinian, uh, each acting in their own name, uh, help rebuild the city. Um, uh, and this is, I think, a sort of role of uh, the independent empress 
that had actually, you know, come to the fore in the previous uh, in the previous century, not only uh, with Ariadne, but there was Ariadne's mother, Verena. Uh, there was Pulcheria, uh, the uh, sister of the Emperor Theodosius II, uh, and Empress in her own right when uh, her brother died and she picked the next emperor, Marcion, um, and married him on the provision that they never had sex. <laughs> so, and yet she didn't just function in her own role. She was really a uh, a, a very influential advisor to Justinian in, in, in uh, some key in instances. And I think uh, the one that really stands out in the book is regarding the Nika revolt. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit about that revolt and, and just how pivotal Theodore was in uh, Justinian's uh, uh, out in the outcome for Justinian. Yes. The Nike Revolt was uh, in January of 532. It was a time when Justinian was already having some difficulties. Uh, he'd gone to war with the Persians a couple of years before, and the war had uh, not been going especially well. Uh, Belsarius, his general, had won one battle, but he'd lost the second battle. There are peace negotiations going on. The Persians have been treating the Roman Empire sort of like a bank. Uh, they always seem to be so short on cash. And when they did so, they would raid the Roman Empire, make a treaty uh, with the Romans, so the Romans would pick up their expenses um, in some place. And these negotiations are going on. It doesn't look good. I mean, your first big foreign policy initiative is a failure. Um, and then there's a riot in the Hippodrome right at the beginning of January, uh, and some people are arrested. And the prefect of the city says, we're going to go execute these people. And when that happens, the rope breaks and a number of people who've been sentenced to death are rescued by the mob. Now, at this point, Justinian botches pretty much everything he does. Uh, and he's clearly not listening to um, people uh, with any kind of good sense. Probably just the prefect of the, of the city said, I don't like this. We're going to get these people. We're going to execute them. Um, I don't care what the, the mob thinks. Um and but then at the circus, the crowd starts demanding the release of these prisoners and Justinian won't do it. And then the crowd goes out and it sets fire in the heart of the city. Major buildings are burnt down. They want to um, uh, they want the prefect of the city out of office. They want the, a whole series of other the demands keep escalating uh, and Justinian doesn't react at all. Uh, rapidly, uh, and he makes the, the the crisis worse by reacting very slowly. And finally, some uh, members of the family of Anastasius think that there's going to be an opportunity here to seize the throne, to drive Justinian out, uh, and uh, they begin plotting against him. Uh, and it looks like Justinian is going to flee the city in the midst of the riot, and, Justi and Theodora then walks into the imperial council uh, and gives a speech um, and it's unfortunately, you know, we don't know what she actually said. It's just reported to us by Procopius. Um, but certainly the version that everybody got was Justinian was ready to throw in the towel. And Theodora came in and said, no way. Uh, she's given a wonderful line uh, to, uh, in her speech. That the purple is a wonderful burial shroud. That she will never see a day where she is not called mistress. Um, and it's up to Justinian uh, to pull himself together and put down this revolt. 
um, which he does, and extremely violently after that, he sends in the Imperial Guard to massacre a crowd which is gathered in the in the Hippodrome. Um, the numbers killed, we are given all kinds of numbers, very large numbers, 35,000, 50,000, etc. Uh, we don't really know how many people died on this occasion. Um, it brought the riot to an end. Um, and But it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a sign here that uh, Theodora was very willing uh, to support um, extremely strong action to protect her position. She was going to stay on the throne, uh, and she is certainly responsible, um, as much as anybody, uh, for the massacre in the Hippodrome uh, that ended the Nika revolt, and also kept Justinian on the throne. And she is said to have insisted on the execution of the members of Anastasius's family, um, uh, who had been uh, one of the Hypatius who had been trying to make himself emperor. She seemed to have a real hunger for her position that, that, that Justinian doesn't seem to evidence as much. Yes. Well, she seems to be a lot better at practical action than Justinian does. Justinian will theorize anything to death. Uh, whereas Theodora will actually come out and know this is what we're actually we're actually going to do this, um, and we can feel her at the time of the Nika revolt, um, just as we can see her in years leading up to this. Um, for instance, trying to end child prostitution in Constantinople, um, she is certainly recognized around the empire as a very very powerful, effective uh, figure, um, and one thing that's also very striking is that when she dies in 548, the administration of Justinian really seems to lose its way. You know, that there's the sense that she is really the person uh, who, if you need to get things done, uh, actually did them. So to what degree was she involved in some of the uh, major decisions that were uh resolved during Justine's reign, such as uh, the war in Africa, the the Gothic War. Was she, do we have any evidence that she participated in those as well, or were there other councils that were more significant? There were a lot of people who probably played a, a major role in one of the great successes of the reign of Justinian, and that was the invasion of North Africa, uh, which had been occupied since the 400, late 430s by the Vandals. Uh, who had really established an extremely successful, um, highly piratical state in North Africa. Um, and, uh, and they're very wealthy as well. They uh, had in their possession the uh, treasures of the imperial palace, which they'd uh, sacked back in 453. Um, so, 455, sorry. Um, the, uh, uh, they were an easy target. There was also a lot of evidence um, for political unrest in the kingdom uh, in the 530s. And after five, January 532, I think Justinian was desperate. He needed to do something. He needed a smashing success. Uh, there was some reason to believe that they could be successful in North Africa, um, and it would reverse a notable failure of earliest, earlier years. What makes me think that Theodora played a somewhat significant role in this planning was actually the choice of Belsarius to be the general. Um, she was close to his wife, uh, Belsarius, who, of course, later becomes the great military figure of the reign of Justinian, 
um, didn't have a great record up to that point. He hadn't done particularly well against the Persians. So how did he get command of this great expedition in North Africa? And I suspect it was his connections in the palace that did that. So that would have been Theodora. Um, the Gothic War, when that comes about after the reconquest of North Africa, again, we can see Theodora um, is part of a series of negotiations with the Gothic regime. Uh, she has her own agents uh, in the West. Uh, now, she's not supposed to be running a war on her own. I don't think she did that. But I think that in terms of high-level policymaking, uh, she did play a major role. Uh, and yet she dies in her mid-50s. What were the uh, circumstances behind her death? Was it a, a what, 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 you know, how were her final years? And, and how is her relationship with Justinian in her later years? Well, she died of cancer, in five, we're told, in, uh, in 548. Um, she and Justinian remained incredibly close, despite some very obvious public disagreements. Uh, one of them was over the role of the anti-Chalcedonian clergy. Uh, at one point, uh, Theodora had supported uh, and succeeded in getting um, anti-Chalcedonian uh, bishops appointed in Constantinople and Alexandria. Uh, well, it turned out to be a complete uh, complete failure, partially uh, because of the people that uh, she'd chosen and partially because uh, it got tied up with the politics of the Gothic War. Uh, and the Bishop of Rome just wasn't going to deal with the regime of Justinian if he didn't have pro-Chalcedonian bishops in place. Um, they disagreed certainly over the role of John of Cappadocia, uh, the chief financial official of the previous decade, uh, with whom Theodora had a major falling out, um, and Theodora managed to get him exiled. Again, uh, we can see that she's the driving force behind John's exile, and that uh, Justinian keeps trying not to do it. Uh, <laughs> he you know, just tries to warn him off, be careful, don't do this, don't go to that meeting. Um, but Theodora so, manages to arrange for his exile uh, out to a part of Egypt that she controls. Um, so you know, there, there are these moments of conflict, but the, the thing that comes through again and again and again uh, is just how devoted Justinian is to her uh, and how devoted I think she is to him. Uh, they can disagree, but they keep going on. Um, and I think one of the most meaningful moments after her death, this is a time when Justinian has been out of the out of the city, and he comes back in, um, and he stops the procession at her tomb so he can get off and pray for her. Um, so here it is, years after her death, that Justinian is still advertising his great love for her. So how is it that after her death, and in spite of the you know, very real uh, you know, devotion that Justine has for her, does she develop such a, a negative reputation? You mentioned Procopius you know, never seems to have a good word for her. And, and she comes across it with, with the, you know, from Procopius and, and some of the other writings with an image that, as you describe at the end of the book, you know, she only within the past, you know, within recent uh, times, has finally started to shake. Yes, well, I think the the problem here is Procopius' secret history, which is one of the nastier pieces of work ever written. Um, I think he wrote it as a sort of, um, uh, to keep secret, um, right after a plot uh, to unseat Justinian had been uncovered in the early 550s, uh, and it's this sort of recantation. He'd been a propagandist for the regime, writing the history of the wars and history of the buildings. 
uh, for years, and I think he really wanted to prove to the next emperor if it should uh, emerge out of these conspiracies that he really wasn't the sort of complete loyalist that he'd been making him uh, making himself out to be. Uh, you know, the picture of Theodora at the Nika revolt is actually in the history of the wars and it's clearly intended to be a positive picture of her from Procopius, but he undermines it all. This is a um, large-scale sexual fantasy that he uh, uncorks in the uh, in the uh, in the secret history. Um, but you know, when we think about the Middle Ages and the history of this period, people knew very little about this period. Uh, as we come into the Renaissance, um, they just had Procopius's history of the wars. They had the Code of Justinian. Uh, but Theodora is sort of in the background, except for you know. Uh, the moment where she gets rid of John the Cappadocian and uh, and the Nika revolt in all of this, um, or in Catholic historians, uh, people hate her uh, because they see her as responsible uh, for the exile and execution of a pope. Again, she's remembered in the, the Western tradition as a staunch anti-Chalcedonian, uh, somebody who the true believers really don't like. Um, so that negative tradition. And then when the secret history is discovered, this becomes... You know, the delight of everybody, um, especially, of course, uh, Gibbon, who um, quotes bits and pieces of it uh, with delight uh, in the time of the Roman Empire as a way of, sort of shaping, an, and Montesquieu had done this before Gibbon, uh, a way of, sort of shaping an image of the Byzantine world as somehow um, inferior to the uh, Roman Empire. It's uh, you know, the world is going downhill, and the symbol of it is this actress and prostitute should become empress of Rome. Um, can't get much worse than that, uh, especially not in the views of uh, 17th century intellectuals, 18th century intellectuals. Um, but then, in the last century, uh, we've recovered uh, the writings of the um, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox community. Uh, that is Eastern Orthodox, the Syrian Orthodox Church uh, in particular, and the writings of uh, John of Ephesus um, and uh, others, many of whom quoted John. Uh, we've paid more attention uh, to the writings of chroniclers who don't, who tell us a lot about Theodora, but they don't have the political angle that Bacobius did. Uh, you know, frankly, uh, there were a lot of writers uh, of history in the 19th century uh, who uh, seem to be drawn to the smut of Procopius over the facts of other people. Um, but it fit with an overall picture of the Byzantine Empire as somehow sort of somewhat decadent, somewhat corrupt, not this incredibly vibrant society uh, that it really was. Well, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, I've changed gears a bit now, and I'm uh, doing a book uh, for a new series to be published by Profile Press in England and Harvard in the United States. Uh, it's a history of the rise of the Roman Empire, and I'd like to think that it can balance uh, the history of the Byzantine Age. Wow. Sounds like quite a fascinating project. Is it a uh, large work, or is it more of a uh, short introduction? It should be. It's a relatively large uh, work. It should be about 150,000 words, according to my publisher, when it gets done. Um, and hopefully it'll give people... Um, an enjoyable and uh, readable image of how the Roman Empire came together. I look forward to reading it. Well, David, I want to thank you for being on our show today. I uh, really enjoyed uh, talking with you about uh, Theodora and her, her very interesting life and times. Take care and have a good day. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs>